right, good morning guys, my name is Cody, and I get to be the pastor here at the table, and uh, we want to welcome you, we want to tell you that you belong um, here, uh, it is not by accident that you showed up or walked in here today, um, but we are um, excited that you're here. We're starting a new series today called um, Unexpectations, looking at the book of Ruth, we'll be in this for the next five weeks, and um, today we are going to be in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, so I will read the scripture and then i will pray for us and i'll let you get um have a seat and we will work our way through this today so ruth chapter one um if you have one of the bibles picked up on the way in it's on page 222 and if you don't don't worry about it they'll be on the screens but if you don't have a bible please get one on the way out we want you to have a copy of that so ruth chapter one starting in verse one in the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Maalon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. God, that we would see you um, in the midst of this tragedy in the life of this family. And God, that we would see you um, through the tragedies of our own life. God, would you work through your word today? And we ask it in Jesus' good, good name. Amen. You may have a seat. So the series is called Unexpectations. And here's how this is going to be set up over the next few weeks. Um, today we're looking at an unexpected life. Just the curveballs that life throws at us and how life turns out not the way we expect it to. Certainly it's like that for Ruth and Naomi and Orpah, for Elimelech, for Maelon and Kilion and all this, this family. 
Um, and then next week, we're going to look at unexpected loyalty. Um, we're kind of get a hint of that at the very last verse we saw here with, that Ruth clung to Naomi. And then we're going to see unexpected opportunity um, that Ruth, as they go back into um, Judah, that she has this unexpected opportunity um, for work and for like sustenance. And then we're going to see this unexpected redeemer, this unexpected savior that comes in. And um, that's how we're going to be looking at that in this series called Unexpectations. Here's what I want us to look at as far as the big idea today, the thing that I want you to leave here saying, leave here believing, leave here thinking through that tragedy advances God's plans for God's people. Tragedy advances God's plans for God's people. I want you to have a big God theology. I don't want you to have a theology that just sees God as maybe just a little bit of sprinkle of salt onto your main dish. I want you to have a main dish theology. I want you to have a big God theology. And the idea is that God is sovereign over everything. About 10 or 15 years ago, my son and I were sitting in the living room in Velma, Oklahoma, and Silas asks me, he says, Dad, God created the world, right? Yes. And he knew everything that was going to happen, right? Yes. He knew that sin was going to happen, right? Yes. Then why did he create the world? He's like a... He's like somewhere between the ages of 5 and 10. I can't exactly remember, but like he's, he's a little guy. And my answer, I don't have a big, long answer for that. Uh, here's how I responded to him. I was like, well, son, when me and your mom got ready to make you, we knew that you were going to sin. We knew that you were going to cause us some problems every once in a while. I mean, yes, just what kids do, Right? We know that it's not going to be without challenges. He said, yeah. I said, are you glad we made you anyway, though? He said, yes. So that's, the, that, that's how deep I'm going to go with that, okay? Yes, God knew there was going to be problems. But I want you to know that none of the, for, for God's people, if you believe that God is big, meaning that like he is all-knowing, that he knows things that you don't, that he is all-powerful, that he can do things that you can't, and that he is always present, like he can be in places that you cannot be. If you believe those things about God, then you have to understand he is a big God, and he is powerful enough, smart enough, and present enough to work through your tragedy to work through your circumstance, to work through your heartache. I want you to have a big God theology. Big God. And I hope that you'll see that as we work through this text. You may, it, it may not stand out today, but as we unfold this over the next five weeks, it's just going to become clearer and clearer that God has not forsaken his people, and I want to tell you that if you belong to him, he has not forsaken you. So, tragedy advances God's plans for God's people. 
So let's go ahead and look at this. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now here's what the setting is. I told you last week that I want you to read the book of Ruth every week. And also over the next five weeks, I want you to read the book of Judges. This is, we got to understand this is the context of what's going on. What it means about Judges is that there wasn't a king. So this is sometime between when Joshua took the children of Israel into the promised land and before Saul is anointed as king. It's, it's about a 180-year time period um, in, the, in the life of Israel. And there's no national king. Matter of fact, in the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it's a complicated time and it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In some ways, it was anarchy. It was a time, it was complicated. There was invasions from other um, tribes. There were tribal factions. There was war, every, and there's no king leading everybody because God is supposed to be their king. But everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. The judges were not national politicians. They weren't national legalistic functionaries, but instead they were local deliverers that God would raise up. Because he does not forsake his people. And this man, Elimelech, we see in verse 2, is one of those men who does what is right in his own eyes. There's a famine in the land. And anytime in, in the book of Ruth where it says the land, it's talking about the land of Judah. So it's a, it's a, it's a widespread famine. He's, he's got to leave Bethlehem, which ironically, Bethlehem means house of bread. And he has to leave there, and he goes to Moab. Now you say, well, what's the big deal about Moab? And we're not talking about just up north like Utah. We're, Moab was rivals with Israel. They did not get along. I mean, we're talking like, like there was just animosity, hatred between these two nations, between these two people groups. They did not like one another. And yet, Elimelech takes his wife and his two sons and goes to this land just just to feed, just to find food. So we go on to verse two. He 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 moves to Moab. He puts it. He sets his hope in another place, with another people. He leaves the land of God, he leaves the people of God, and sojourns to a different area. And this is a theme, as we see we see it in Genesis with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. We see this happening over and over again with God and His people. And guess what? It happens with us too. We have this propensity to set our hope in other things. We have our, a propensity to set our hopes in other things besides God. John Calvin says that the human heart is an idol factory. And Tim Keller says, what is an idol? He says, an idol is anything that you get your ultimate identity from. Something that if it were taken away from you, your life would be absolutely devastated. And here's the crazy thing. Idols, they don't have to be like little figurines that we set up on the mantle or on our you know, curio cabinet at our house. But they, idols can be good things that we turn into ultimate things. Idols can be our wife or our relationship or our job or our kids that we turn into ultimate things. 
So Elimelech has set his hope in another place with another people. I already said that Bethlehem means house of bread. Interesting. You know what Elimelech means? God is my king. Word is broken down. Eli, from which is the root of the word Elohim, which is the general word for God, and Melech is the Hebrew name for king. God is my king. Naomi means pleasant or lovely or delightful. But here's where it gets a little bit weird. Malon and Kilion, the names of those, of, those, of those kids, those boys, Malon means weak or sickly. Like, who names their kid that? Like, even if they are, why do you name your kid that? Kilion is worse. It means ailing, pining, or even can mean annihilation. Now, here's the most tragic thing about it, though. Whereas Elimelech and Naomi are Hebrew names, Malon and Kilion are not. They're Ugaritic names. They're Canaanite names. They're na- they're, it, it's that language. So it's, it's just in Elimelech naming his kids that, it's, a, it's him moving away from God and God's people and God's place and God's provision and God's perseverance. It's him moving away. He's becoming more secular, more worldly. In verse 3, it says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, dies. Now, here's the thing. I'm not Elimelech's God, and I am not his judge. And I'm not going to stand here and say that his death and the death of his sons was God's judgment. Maybe, maybe not. God only knows. And I'm not going to stand here and, and try to heap guilt and shame upon you and tell whatever tragedy has happened in your life and say that that is God's judgment. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Maybe, maybe not. I can only say that he left the people of God, he left the place of God, he left the provision of God, and he put his hope somewhere else. And I would ask you, to self-evaluate, to analyze what are you putting your hope in. And I would also ask you, have you ever put your hope in some place or something or someone and it turned out bad? Because we do that oftentimes, right? We, we, we say, I don't like this relationship. I'm going to get out of it. I'm going to get another one. And then just rinse and repeat. That go, or, or we say, I'm going to leave this place. I want to go to a better place. If I can just get away from these people and get to these. I, we, we do that. I, I remember telling a teenage girl one time, she, you know, she's in high school. She goes, I cannot wait to get out of this town. This is such a small-minded town and so small. And I'm like, yeah, it, it's tiny. I get it, 637 people. But I told her, I said, that thing that you're running away from is going to follow you to wherever you go. And it, it same way, it doesn't matter if you can move cross country. It, whatever it is you're trying to run from is with you. A new, a, a new place is not going to magically make it go away. A new job is not going to magically make it go away. A new relationship is not magically going to make it go away. So have you ever been in a place where 
everything is removed like Naomi was here. She was left with only her two sons. And then her sons die. And she's left without a son and husband, which maybe that's not, that doesn't mean as much. That really doesn't hit us here because, like, we, we live in, like, the days of Aflac and Progressive and we have insurance and we have safety nets and we have all that. None of that. There's no safety net that she has. She is destitute. She is the, she becomes the, oh, the poorest of the poor overnight in a land that is not her own with a people who are not her own. She is left with no other options. Have you ever been there? Where The only other option you have is to go back to God. And you're not even sure how that's going to work. It's not a fun place to be, is it? Matter of fact, we, as Western Christians, arrange our lives so that we never have to be put in that place. We never want in that place. We never want the, the place where we have no options. We always want to have options. The, the tragedy is we make idols out of those options and they enslave us and they ensnare us because we know from experience, we know this deep down, and we're scared of it, we're scared to admit it, but we know it. We know that when we get in that place where there's no other place to turn except for Him, that's where the growth really happens. It's, the, it's one of the best places to be, but we're terrified of it. Right? And so we run from it. Listen, tragedy. As much as we run from it, Understand that tragedy advances the purposes of God. It advances God's plans for His people. Have a big God theology. Have a theology so that when tragedy comes into your life, whether it is the loss of a relationship, the loss of a job, the loss of a house, cancer, sickness, have a theology big enough that when that tragedy comes in, because it will, we live in a fallen world, Have a theology big enough that when that happens, you're not shaken. And you don't flee and just go off and and choose other kinds of things, just putting your hope in other things. But be steadfast. Have a big God theology. Now, I will say this was unexpected for Naomi. Grief is unpredictable. It doesn't happen when we want it. She was left. Like I said, no insurance, no safety net, no other options. Her only hope was going back to the people of God and back to the place of God. So she arose. Verse 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. That word, she arose, is used oftentimes in um, the Old Testament, um, used of a literal rising from a prone position. A prone position meaning like face down before God. She arose. She was broken. I believe that she had been on her face before God. Nowhere else to turn. I imagine that this act of arising was her first step back toward God. Because let's be honest, I mean, you God can bring you flat on your face before Him. 
but it's never meant to keep you there. When God brings you face down before Him, He doesn't stand on your back and keep you there. He does not stand with His foot on your neck. That's not the kind of God we have. We have a God that will bring tragedy into our lives, but not to keep us down, but to bring us back to Him. Have a big God theology. Have a theology that sees God, that there's a purpose behind the pain. And know that pain is the plan. So I imagine this is her first step of repentance after humble confession. I think that she had heard that the Lord had visited his people and she didn't have much. But she knew that, okay, God visits his people. That God's faithful even when we're not. And so she goes. Tragedy advances God's plans for His people because God doesn't give up on His people. God doesn't give up on His people. He doesn't give up on you. If you are His, His affection, His love is set upon you and there is nothing that you can do, there is nothing in all of creation that can remove that from you. His Once he sets his affection on you, it is there. It's why Jesus says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. There is authority behind what he says. And I realize that your tragedy may be dark. I realize that your heartache may be deep. But I'm telling you, it does not eclipse the love of God. So in light of that, I want to give you just a a real short three-piece recipe for repentance. Because I don't know what your hurt is today, but I, here's just three simple steps. Get low. If you haven't gotten low, if you've not been brought to the place where you are prone before God, where you're on your face before God, get there. Because that's what He works through. He works through broken people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, is what He says in the Beatitudes. Get low. And then I would say, don't, but don't stay low. Get up. She arose. Get up. He, he doesn't want to keep you down. And then I would say that the next step, and we see it in verse 7, set out. Take that step toward God. And I don't know what that step looks like for you today. Maybe that is saying, okay, I'm going to believe and I'm going to trust. In spite of everything that I see in my life, I'm going to believe and I'm going to trust. Or maybe it's like, I don't know that I'm ready to trust yet, but I'd like to talk to somebody about it then come see me after church. See me out there in the lobby or talk to your friends and just take a step toward a conversation. So get low, get up, and set out. The the impression between verses 6 and verse 7 is that she quickly set out. Like, it's it's not real long. She arose, she heard what had happened, she set out. There's not a whole lot to pack. When you've lost it all. It wasn't like she had to spend a lot of time reminiscing, having a garage sale and all that stuff. <laughs> like, just get out. Here's, I, I say that, and this is probably going a little bit, this isn't all in the text, but I mean, but we know that, right? I mean, there's, we can always find delays for our obedience. We always find all kinds of little things to delay our obedience and delay our following God. And Naomi didn't do that. 
Now, I'm not saying Naomi's perfect. I don't think, I, I think she is dealing with her grief, dealing with this loss. It is right up in her face, right on the windshield. I don't, I'm not saying that she is a, an emotionally healthy, like she could just go on the speaking circuit with Brene Brown. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying she is working through some stuff, but there are some things about her that are admirable and that she's just kind of feeling her way through it. My wife does this with directions sometimes. She just feels her way to places. I don't like that. I like seeing where I'm going. I don't like, you know, when she's co-piling, says, turn right there. I'm already past it. You're like, but, you know, God bless her. She finds her way to places. She just feels her way there. I think that's kind of how Naomi, she's just feeling her way there. And we're going to see it with what she says here in just a little bit. Look at verses 8 and 9. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. And then she says this, May the Lord deal kindly with you. This is, uh, this is why I think that she, she's getting there. That even in the midst of her hurt, even in the midst of her tragedy, she's praying for her daughters-in-law. May the Lord deal kindly with you. And here's what's really interesting. When she says the Lord, the word there is Yahweh. Now, just a little quick lesson for us. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament and familiar with these different names of the Lord, the most common word for, for God in the Hebrew language is Elohim. That's the one that, that's kind of like the general word for God. But Yahweh, that's the name that God told Moses that he would be known by. And it means I am. It's the personal name for God. It's, it's when God came down to Moses and met him at the burning bush and introduced himself to him and said, this is how you should know me. This is, this is personal. It's not just this general knowledge of God, but this is personal knowledge of God. And when Naomi prays for Orpah and for Ruth, she uses the personal name of God. Not just like this general prayer, like I'm praying over Thanksgiving dinner, but no, this is like the, personally. Naomi, this tells me that Naomi is talking to God personally. And therefore, because she's talking to God personally, she's talking about God personally. Like she knows Him. Even in the midst of her tragedy. Let me ask you something. When tragedy happens in your life, this is just a self-evaluation. By the way, if you're in a community group, this ought to come back up to this week. When tragedy happens, does it push you to God or away from Him? Does it push you personally to Him? Or does it push you generally away from Him? It tells you a lot about where you're at in your relationship with Him. But she knows him personally. That's why tragedy advances God's plan for God's people. It's exclusive. Tragedy doesn't advance God's plan for everybody. It advances God's plans for his people. So my question is, do you know him personally? Or do you just know him generally you just know some general things about him? Or do you know him personally? Do you know Yahweh? Or do you just know 
Elohim. This mystic force in the sky. You should know this big God. And they said to her, verse 10, No, we will return with you to your people. And then Naomi, she lays it out for him. What she talks about in verses 10 through 13 is a concept called leveret marriage, which we will get into in more detail in the weeks to come. But just so that we understand what's going on here, in Hebrew law, what would happen is that if a man died childless, he was married but died without a child, then according to the law of leveret marriage, then that man's brother, it was his responsibility to marry then that woman, have a child through her, and then that child would be considered the heir of the deceased brother. That way his family line would continue. You get get this? So that's the idea of leveret marriage. So that's why Naomi is saying, I don't have any other sons. You can't even do this. Like, like, even if I find a husband today and get pregnant, like, it's 10, like, are you really going to wait until they're old enough to marry them? Like, it's just not going to happen. She's just looking at things logically. According to Leverett marriage. Now, here the, the interesting thing about this is like she's explaining all this and the idea is that they know about it. So that means that Naomi obviously has had some kind of conversations with them about this obscure law in Deuteronomy called Leverett marriage. I say all that to say Naomi's been discipling these girls. She's been teaching them what the law says. She's been teaching them about Yahweh. I don't know that she's done it perfectly. And I'm not saying she's in a perfectly a good spot because verse 13 she says, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Now there's, a, there's kind of a positive and maybe a negative thing about that. The positive thing is, Naomi had a big God theology. She saw God as absolutely sovereign over the events of her world, even if she didn't understand it or like it. But she saw God as as sovereign. The negative thing is, she said, God's hand is against me. She, she, I don't know that she, 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 I don't know that she knows that God's for her. But she has no other option but to go back toward him. And we look at this on the other side of the cross and we can say, no, God is for us. He is for us. It's been demonstrated by what he's done through Christ on the cross on our behalf. But have you ever felt that way? Even now, on this side of the cross, I, I feel that way sometimes. Don't I mean, and if you say that you never do, you're a liar. If you say, no, I've never felt like the Lord, the hand of the Lord is against me. Well, bro, you ain't lived enough. Sister, you ain't got there yet, but you will. And when you feel that way, do you go away from him or do you go toward him? Naomi is not a perfect woman. And neither are you and neither am I. Of course, I'm not a woman. 
She may not be all that emotionally healthy. She's grief-stricken, but she is taking a step toward God even though she doesn't fully understand what God is doing or why He is doing it. And you can do that also. You You don't have to, and you're not going to know everything that God has in store. You're just not. But you can take a step toward Him. Tragedy advances God's plans for His people. I want you to memorize a verse this week. Romans 8, 28. Paul, in the middle of his magnum opus of theology, in this letter to the Roman church, says these words. And we know, he's talking about Christians, we, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Tragedy advances God's plan, God's purpose for God's people. The Christian life is about aligning our expectations with God's expectations. And that means having some unexpectations. (laughs) We close with verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. Two daughters-in-law hear the same speech from the same woman. And take very drastic different paths. Orpah, we're going to see next week, turns goes back and she chooses to have a life and a husband and chooses the familiar. And I'm not saying she's wrong for doing that. But Ruth clung to her. Had she not, the book wouldn't have been called Ruth. It had been called Naomi. (laughs) Ruth decided to stay with her. Even though even though we'll get into this more next week, even though she had every inclination to believe that her life would be worse because of it. She will immigrate, and as far as she knows, to a land of less opportunity, not more. Now, most immigrants that I've ever met don't leave their country for worse opportunities. But that's exactly what Ruth does. I mean, who does that? I'll tell you who. Missionaries. And Jesus. You see, God had a plan to redeem his people and it was going to involve the worst tragedy imaginable. His son, Jesus, would have to leave heaven, immigrate to earth, become one of us, He would be rejected, misunderstood, beaten, mocked, crucified. And it was all of our big God's plan. Jesus aligned his expectations with God's so that we could be set free from our sins, so that we could have a better life. Ruth set aside her expectations so that Naomi could have a better life. She's a picture of Christ and what Christ does for us. And I want you to know that just as Ruth clung to Naomi, Jesus will cling to you. 
He will never let go if you're his. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He is the friend that sticks closer than a brother or a husband or a son or a sister or a daughter-in-law. He is a big, big God that can use your tragedy to advance His plan in your life. So, as we wrap this thing up today, I want to give you a couple of invitations. Actually, four. Number one, I want to invite you to know God personally, not just know about God. I want to invite you to move from knowing about God to knowing God personally. I want you to move from Elohim to Yahweh. And I just want you to ask and evaluate, do I know God like that? What happens when tragedy happens? Do I blame God or do I run to Him? Do I run away from Him or toward Him? What? Evaluate. And if you don't know Him personally, I want to invite you to pray and, and, and get to know Him today. Just lay down, lay it down before Him today and know this God. And know that He is big enough to work despite your tragedy. That He can use your tragedy for good. And if you say, I'm not ready to do that just yet. I'm not going to do that here, sitting here today. I'm not going to do that just because you say so. Fine, understand. Would you at least be willing to have a conversation? Either with me later on this week, let's get coffee, let's talk about it. Or with your friend who brought you. Just enter into a conversation about what what does it look like to follow this God? For those of you who are already Christians, you're walking with Jesus, you've been baptized, you're following Him, you're walking in repentance, I want to invite you to take communion. We take communion, we take that little wafer, it represents the life of Jesus, His perfect, spotless, sinless life, His righteousness that's been given to us, that we don't come to God on our own terms, that we come because of what He has done for us on our behalf. And we drink that juice knowing that that represents His shed blood. That we are spotless and sinless before God because of what Jesus has done for us. And then, once all the little cups quit crinkling and all that good stuff, one by one people are going to stand up and we're going to sing as a congregation. And we invite you to sing. So if you don't believe, you can believe today. You can know God personally. If you're not ready for that yet, but you're willing to have a conversation and talk more about it and ask questions, man, I'm willing to talk to you. If you're already following Jesus, take communion. Know that your hope rests in Him. Not in your circumstances. And then let's sing to this big God. Let's sing big to this big God. Let me pray for you, and then we'll let you get after it. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for what you have done for us, thank you for what you are doing through us, God. Give us the faith. Give us the ability to even thank you for the tragedies. God, may we have that big of a theology. May we have that big God theology that we thank you even for the things that hurt. God, you're worthy of all of our praise. You're worthy of all of our obedience. Lord, may we move, may we take steps toward you today. In your good, good name we pray. Amen.